What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com. And today, I've got special guest Tara from Slowdown Farmstead on the line. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. This was a little bit different than most of my podcast. We didn't talk about bodybuilding. We didn't talk about fitness. We talked about farming, regenerative farming. We talked about raising your own animals, slaughtering your own cattle, providing food for your own family. And it was just an awesome, awesome conversation. I resonated with every single thing she said and I want to emulate it as best I can going forward in my own life. I'm a huge hunter. I've always had lamb and, you know, chickens and stuff, you know, with my folks growing up. It's just how I was raised. So it was just cool to talk with her about that way of living and the circle of life. And I feel like y'all will learn a ton about this. Uh, it, it'll make you want to own your own farm, your own ranch, and be totally self-sufficient. So without further ado, sit back, relax, hope you enjoy, hope you learn something. We're live. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Robert? I'm doing wonderfully well. So I I think, I don't know, I think you are pretty well known within the keto space. If not, you should be because I feel like most of the people in the keto space eat a lot of meat. There are definitely <laughs> some exceptions, but most people do. And I feel like you do a really good job at illustrating where your meat comes from, whereas a lot of people are just ignorant to that fact. So... I wanted to get you on here to kind of dive into what that life is like and just kind of peel the layer back a few notches so that people can understand how this whole, you know, circle of life process truly works. Yeah, that sounds awesome. First, can you give me, give me like a little intro on, you know, what got you into like the farmsteading in the first place? Like that, I, I have a huge passion for that. I grew up doing many of the same things that I see you doing on Instagram. So I feel like I'm talking to my kinfolk here. <laughs> um, but just kind of bring me some bring bring me some history, some backstory here. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we sort of moved around when I was a kid, but we spent some time on a quarter uh, corner of my parent my grandparents' um, farm in Manitoba, and uh, those were really the most impressionable, meaningful times of my development. And um, I knew sort of you know growing up and becoming an adult and uh, having to. Uh, we were, my husband was in the military. I was in the military for a while. So we were posted every couple of years. And uh, we always knew sort of when we got to that time when we'd be able to plant roots that we wanted to get back to a farm. So I spent a lot of time in those years volunteering on farms. I was a nutritionist at the time. And um, I used to use my spare time to haul my kids out to farms with me. And um, you know, I just work for free to learn. And um, I met a lot of really good friends. I got an amazing mentor through that process. And so, yeah, fate kind of finally came rolled in when my husband was sort of nearing retirement. We knew we weren't going to be posted again. Our daughters were older. A couple of them had left. Uh, well, one of them actually had left um, home for um, university. And we just got to a place where we were able to finally get a farm of our own. So that's what we did. We bought a farm and we sold um, grass fed and finished beef and pork and turkeys and everything. Um, had an organic farm and we did that for a few years. And then we just decided that we kind of wanted to downsize and raise for ourselves and some, you know, a handful of friends and family. And so that's sort of what we're doing now. Before you all got the farm of your own, was it pretty easy to find, you know, just local places where you can kind of plug in and, and volunteer work and, and just learn or was that kind of like a struggle finding opportunities like that you know it was um it was actually 
easier at didn't know for because um, I would just take any opportunity that presented itself. You know, we would go to farmers markets. Um, every time we moved, I would <clears throat> contact my Weston A. Price chapter leader. I would go to farmers markets and talk to people and say, okay, you don't raise, you know, grass finished beef, but do you know someone who does? And I would just sort of network that way so I could get all of our food suppliers in. And at the same time, I would just sort of ask around and, you know, ask if I could come help one day a week or, you know, whatever the, they, however they could plug me into their, their farming operation, I would, I'd be willing to do it. And at the beginning, I didn't really know what um, I felt really passionate about. I just sort of would go on to any farm that would take me. So there'd be, you know, a lot of market gardens growing vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. And, um, you know, as I, as I sort of developed an understanding of farming systems and I knew how I wanted to, um, one day farm myself, then it became a little bit tougher because then I was getting more specific about the type of farms, um, I wanted to spend time on so that I could learn as well. You know, I knew I would never grow vegetables for a living. So, you know, it didn't make much sense for me to go weed someone's, um, you know, um, market garden for a whole day. Um, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't such a great use of my time. I'd rather go, you know, shovel shit on a cattle farm or yeah. something for the day. Um, so yeah, that, um, you know, as, as things moved on, I ended up, um, actually, um, getting a really great mentor. Uh, he was a lifelong cattleman in Alberta and owned, uh, I think it's seven or 8,000 acres, uh, where bison roam freely. And he raised, uh, grass finished beef and had, um, on farm, um, abattoir and butcher shop. And so he was a really, uh, beautiful butcher as well. And so he really became my guiding light. And, um, that's sort of where I spent all my years, all my free time for the, for the last few years. Um, he, he passed away, unfortunately, but um, that's where I really cemented in a lot of the principles and values and sort of morals that I operate um, our farm under right now. If you were to like tack those up as like the, the Ten Commandments that you live by as far as, you know, being self-sufficient is concerned, what would those what would those be? What are those principles? Mm. Oh boy, that's a big question. Yeah, um, it's got a little question. I didn't plan on coming out with that at the gates, but <laughs> you just poised me you're for it. You're hitting me right at the beginning, Robert. <laughs> um, uh, I really, I really think that um, fundamentally, I believe that a farm should emulate the natural systems, the rules, nature's rules, um, and that we can raise animals that that eating animals has been you know it's why you and i are talking right now because our ancestors ate meat you know and and animals and um i i feel like we have to really we have to accept that whether we're uncomfortable with it or not it is it is there's a lot of uncomfortable things in nature but it's my job um to be supportive of all life so we have domestic animals here on our farm and i want them to have the best life possible i also want them to have a really good death but my life my farm is just um full of biodiversity there's 
a million, you know, there's ecosystems and ecosystems within ecosystems and, and these, and pockets of life that just become all this like tapestry of this whole vibrant system that's here, um, much bigger than me thing. I just have to get out of the way of it. And so, um, you know, we have, um, like there's bears where I live, there's deers where I live, there's beavers that have created the most magical water systems that sometimes I just stand on the hill and watch them working away. And it's like, you know, better than any PhD engineer could ever create. It's just, it's amazing. And so it's, I also feel that um, when I, when we eat meat and we get this beautiful nutrient dense, uh, nutritious food source, that there's um, a backstory to that and that we all have a responsibility and a role to play in that. And, um, you know, it's not just, it's not just the, the animals are out on, on, on pasture and, and creating that network of life within the soil, but that's a very big part of it, but it, it goes bigger and deeper than that. And I think that, um, it's sort of the hard way to do things, but I think it's the right way to do things. And so there's a lot of nuance and a lot of details in that, that um, I'm not sure how to, how to pluck out um, <laughs> without putting you to sleep. But um, yeah, I just, for me, ultimately, um, I feel a deep sense of responsibility for the gift of, of the nourishment that these animals give. And to me, that means a really good life um, for them within the land that they live in, for all the creatures that are around us that um, play a role in that. And then, um, like I said, for a, a really humane death, um, I think we all have to take that on um, fundamentally. That's that's what I believe anyway. I mean, I, I totally agree. I don't know if it's because of the way I was raised or just the way I have seen life take place with my own eyes, but it just makes sense. Like it fundamentally makes the most sense to me. I mean, we all live, we all die. And to make the most beautiful existence while you can, you know, the 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 dash so to speak you get your birth date and your death date and that time in between like how to make the most of that both your as as an individual as a human but then for all the other humans and and livestock that you come in contact with just life in general like making the most of it in the most pristine manner possible i feel like that should be anybody's responsibility but trying to turn the other cheek and and be ignorant to the fact that death is a part of that just seems very obscure to me and honestly it's it's not doing anybody a favor because when you know and accept that death is there it makes the life all the more beautiful and i feel like oh. when people recognize that then they can appreciate it for what it is much much more i totally agree with you i think we have a really um you know in the modern world we've been really taken away from death there's you know i mean people used to have wakes and you would you know that mentor my friend um his name was richard and when he died um they had his body in his bed and we all went and sat with him um with his body and you could still feel that his spirit was there and, and you know it was it there was um we just don't see that anymore. We hide it. And, and I think it's the more that we hide these things, you know, whether we're talking about animals or even with us and we treat death as if it's this disease or this like violent dysfunction 
And, um, you know, we measure the quality of life by the years lived. It doesn't matter if the last 30 someone was, you know, had Alzheimer's and didn't know who they were, you know, if they were diseased and they were artificially kept alive. It's, it's, it's these ideas that I think have penetrated into um, our overall understanding of our place in the natural world so much so that now, like, we're so darn cocky that we just think, you know, if something doesn't fit with us emotionally if it causes us discomfort that we get to rewrite truths and and no we don't I mean there's a price to pay for that you can you can think you're doing it but you know keeping yourself comfortable and saying well I'm not a part of that um but you know no one gets to no one gets to decide that it's gonna it's it's there and and I agree with you you know we being cognizant of death really does you you stop wasting all this life because you think you can it's going to go on forever it's hard to just be numb and sit in front of a tv day after day you know numbing yourself with garbage food when you're cognizant of the fact that this time here is so short and and there's so much work to do and so much beauty to admire and and um yeah that's what i i think that's what living is is and i think that our ancestors you know with with the presence of death you know um um that was a lot more that was that was there with them often i mean if you you know caught a cold or you went out to chop a tree and you got a cut and you could bleed to death or whatever i mean it was it was it was constantly in the forefront and um i think that that quality of life is is a lot more vibrant and and um enriching than sort of this you know, living a long life and being safe all the time. Do you think this shift in thinking is predominantly a result of just a total disconnection from reality? Like people now, you know, they don't see with their own eyes life and death like it actually happens. I mean, it's it's covered with this this veil that removes all the, you know, quote-unquote grotesque parts. And I think that is, is just totally separated people from reality. I mean... You know, I my, my father's a biologist. Uh, you know, we grew up on land. We've raised and slaughtered our own animals since I could remember. But most people don't have that opportunity. Most people are not raised on property. They're raised in the middle of a city, and they buy their their food from a grocery store. And they they don't they don't see these things. Like they just it's so far removed from their reality. They don't read about them. They don't learn about them. It's it's not really discussed in school like it was at one point. It's just a total different dimension, it seems. And I feel like people just don't have the awareness. Yeah, I I think so, too. And I think more and more people are being separated from from the natural world, from nature. And and so these things seem more and more um, foreign and more violent and disagreeable. And they don't quite have the language or the emotional development to to understand that like you have to actually like i mean if you grow up in the city and you know you don't spend a lot of time in nature you have to like work to get exposure to stuff like that you know you have to i mean i i it seems to me that and maybe it's just the pocket that's around me but more and more people are becoming interested in hunting and um more people i mean i i do have quite a few people that contact me and say you know when you're harvesting your animals would you ever let people come um because they 
I think there are people that see that that's been a deficit in their development and they want to, um, even though it's frightening or, you know, initially anyways, that they want to grow beyond that. And um, I think that's promising and hopeful. Um, but you're right. I mean, when, when you go to the grocery store and there's a piece of meat in cellophane and someone's done all that, you know, killing for you and it's held at arm's distance, then um, it's easy to just pretend that nothing happened. But then, you know, going back to what I said before, I think that's, we have to take that responsibility. And it doesn't mean, I mean, I understand the way our system is set up. It doesn't mean everybody can go out and harvest their own animals, but you know, you can meet your farmer, you can talk um, to the people that are doing it. And, um, you know, if you can't physically be there, there's still levels of responsibility that don't include pulling the trigger, but, but knowing that that animal, what that animal's life was and playing a part in that system, I think is really important. And, um, you know, hunting and fishing, I mean, that's a fantastic way that a lot of people can get involved with understanding um you know that how these things work and understanding our place and and really um it's it's a hard thing as i'm sure you know robert like to explain to someone um that when you know you you shoot a deer let's say as an example um you know there's such a connection and it's not it's nobody i mean except for a very rare few wing nuts no one's out there like yeah i love killing things you know? yeah. like it's, there's a sadness to it but there's also a great joy in it and it's a connection and um it's a thing that you have to experience to really get you know people can use a bunch of words to try and explain it but to really get it on an intimate personal level um you have to get involved with it. And I think the more people that have been empowered with that, you know, to really be like, to really understand fundamentally what it is to, to be connected, to be nourished, to be a part of the whole natural world um, as a human being, it's, um, you know, you actually have to do it. There's, you just, there's just not the words to explain to someone. Um what that's going to be like but even even if it's scary um initially and even if you know because it is scary because like like you said it's just not part of the of how how the modern world is going and more and more we are being um you know not it's sold to us as we're being sort of protected the burden of that responsibility is on someone else's shoulders but it's actually i think it's a big con you know i think people are being ripped off by not experiencing what it is to wholly be themselves i, I totally agree i mean i feel like like you said at the very beginning you know we've arrived at the point we are in, in this day and age because we've consumed meat you know meat is a superior nutritional source uh, i'm sure some would argue that but i feel like most of us are on the same page there and if you eat meat i feel like it is you know, in some part, your moral obligation to at least understand and appreciate where that comes from. I mean, I feel like, especially, you know, like, I look at myself as a man, the head of household, the provider to my family and my, my future family. I want to be able to be 100% totally and completely self-sustainable and be a provider. And for me, being able to hunt or farm or fish or ranch 
and be able to provide the meat to my wife and future kids, you know, by all my own means necessary, like that to me is something I take pride in. I feel like I don't expect everybody to learn how to hunt. I don't expect everybody to, you know, go raise cattle, but at least express an interest and a desire to learn and then be respectful and appreciative of the facts that be. I think that is a huge first step that everybody that eats meat should should definitely make a, a valiant effort to do. Um, but then if you do that and you, you do have that connection, you experience it for yourself, it's hard to, to go back to removing that from your life because it is such a, a magical, like spiritual thing almost. I mean, anytime I've ever killed a deer out in the woods, you know, it's like a connection, a bond that you just don't get in a grocery store. I mean, like Danny Vega, for instance, I took him hunting for the first time. He killed his first deer and like he was just totally in amazement by the whole process, you know, and we, the, mm. the deer had a super clean death. We processed it and butchered it and had it cooking within an hour of it hitting the ground. And like mm. the first bite of that meat is like something, it's just powerful. And like I said, I don't expect everybody to go out there and, and be a hunter, but understanding and recognizing that there's something special about that is is huge and I do feel like there's been a an uptick in interest around both hunting and you know sustainable living agriculture ranching because I feel like you know with social media people have been able to do it and and illustrate it in a positive light like what you're doing um which is awesome because I feel like more people need to be exposed to it and you're going to be able to reach more people with that however I, I can only imagine you're probably getting your fair share of hateful comments on Instagram as well. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I just got a great one this morning. Actually, I read the first sentence and then deleted it. Cause I, I try to be careful about what I let in. I've, you know, there's a difference between someone approaching you and saying, you know, I'm a vegan or a vegetarian or animal rights activist or whatever. And, you know, I just don't get what you're doing. I mean, there's a difference between the initiation of a conversation or questions asked respectfully and people that just, you know, come out with the same one-liners that they picked up on some meme or, you know, they have like the you know, meat is murder. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, just that sort of really simplistic. And it, I really think like when you really drill down into those conversations, it always comes back like you know you can say here's what i'm doing here's what we're you know we're actually improving the land that we're on there's like the life that we're supporting on this farm um you know i i told i spoke of earlier there's you know bear deer fishers beavers i mean i could go on and on we have golden eagles here we have um i mean i i could just list everything um all the wild animals that are supported because i am not taking my farm and mowing everything down and growing a monocrop of soy you know Mm. so if i if i grew some sort of cereal grain here i would have to get rid of all of that life it's not just like the harvesting a lot of people say well when you harvest the soy you kill all the rabbits and stuff but it goes way before that i mean um, I lose all of these trees, all of the native species of all of the um, plants that are here, the wild berries, all the fruits and shrubs and legumes. Um, everything would be gone so that I could grow one monocrop and there'd be nowhere for 
you know, all the, we have um, critically endangered um, frog species that live on our land. And sometimes in the spring, when I take a step, there's so many of them that there's just like, you know, 15 or 20 of them hop around my boot and, um, you know, deer everywhere. And, and it's just so vibrant and all of that would be gone. All, <laughs> if I grew a cereal crop like soy or I don't know, whatever, you know, corn, whatever, yeah. it would all be gone. And, and so it's hard to have patience when, when people say, you know, such, it just, I really think fundamentally it comes from disconnection. Like we were speaking of earlier, disconnection from the natural world, a misunderstanding and ultimately a really deep immaturity, this, this kind of, um, you know, people might agree with disagree with me, but I really think we've moved into this sort of victim culture in our society um, where people have like this bad feeling about something. And instead of like uh, pulling up their bootstraps and saying, you know, all right, I have some work to do here. Um, they start looking at something to point the finger towards and, and blaming it on something else. And so, you know, you get people that are, you know, have this bad feeling, oh, an animal has to die. That makes me feel bad. And instead of being like, well, I'm going to sit with that for a while and consider that that has been the way since the dawn of time. So what, you know, what do I need to do to work on myself? What do I need to do to develop myself, to sit with those emotions, to maybe flush those out so that I can grow and evolve as a human being? But instead of doing that, they point a finger and say, meat is murder and you rape your cows. Like, it's just... um it's so infantile and such a sad little um, example of a stunted human being that I just I feel very um, non-compelled to really even get into it with people like that. Totally, 100% agree. I mean, you cannot be reasonable with unreasonable people. No, you just can't. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a never ending fight for sure. But I feel like all you can do is, is lead by example. And then the people that do see the light in what you're trying to do and are doing, they, they become alive and, and intrigued by it and learn more. And if you can mm -hmm. touch enough of those people, that's where the, the true impact is being made. It's true. And, you know, I have to say to you, like, um, you know, on social media, um, Instagram has been my only foray into social media. My kids never were on social media. They still aren't. They think I'm so weird for doing Instagram. But I, 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 um, the people that are around me, like the real people around me out here in the country, nobody thinks like that. Like nobody, I, I always think there's just like maybe 1% of the people on social media, but they're really loud and really bored and have a lot of time to, you know, throw hate. And then the rest of the people that are actually like living their lives and just really get it, you know, they really get what this is all about, why we're here. They're not on there. So it sometimes can seem like there's a lot more of those <laughs> people than there actually is. When I look around like the people around me, I actually don't know a single person that would behave like that. Um, you know, my neighbors, my friends, I mean, even people outside of my social circle, I don't know anybody that would do that. So I try and keep that in mind, too. It's just to help me keep things in context when I'm on there. Yeah, people that have all this negativity to, to throw at them, 
it's just like they're in this weird echo chamber of their own existence and they literally have no time in their life they're not they're not doing anything of value so they have to add hate to people that are and i used to let really let that get to me but now i just i just don't care like i know what my intentions are i know what my integrity is and if people are going to spout hate in my direction then they clearly don't know who i am or what i stand for and if they're going to be like you know reasonable and they're asking a genuine question then i'll take all the time in the world to explain things to them but if they're just there to make me feel bad then to hell with them yeah exactly how i feel i want to dive into the nuts and bolts of your operation here like when you like let's just back up a little bit so when you got your own ranch and you started doing this you, you were doing it for commercial purposes at first and then you decided to downsize to so do just basically self-sustaining yeah, we got so our uh, our first farm we bought was a couple hundred acres, and we did grass fed and finished beef, and um, we were breeding uh, with heritage cat bred cattle. So we were doing everything organically, um, and then we were also breeding um, pigs and selling pastured pork, organic pastured pork, and then we had like pigs and ducks and stuff. And so we did that for a few years. Um, that was on the tail end of. Um, my husband was still in the military um, before he retired. And um, yeah, we did that for a few years. And we just, uh, for us, because we couldn't, so it was 200 acres. We were cutting our own hay and everything. But um, the volume and the pace that we had to keep things at in order for us to do that um, at a time when we'd already raised three children at a time where we'd spent 25 years, you know, moving every couple of years across the country. Um, we just had a real sit down for a few months actually. And, you know, question what it is that we wanted to do, what we really wanted to do. Um, because, you know, we would roll into the house at one in the morning after working all day and we were exhausted and, um, we just sort of, to us, the most important thing um, was, you know, there was, I wasn't, we weren't going to compromise on the quality of the food we were raising or how we were raising the animals or anything like that. Um, and so we just decided for us just personally that we're just at a time, you know, we're not 20 anymore. We didn't, we just didn't want to, um, burn the rest of our lives out in that way. So we decided that what we were going to do is downsize, slow things down, hence the name slow down. Um, and that we were going to, we bought a smaller farm. So we're just, uh, just over a hundred acres now, um, had a much better house. The other house that we were in would have meant that we'd have to end up rebuilding or doing major renovations, which was another huge cost. Um, and then we just kept, um, we sold a lot of our animals, kept the ones that we couldn't part with and so now we um, raise enough that we can um, sell enough that it sort of pays for the farm and then we um, you know give our daughters all their meat which was really important to us and some of our family um, the other uh, and and then of course like whatever we need as well um, the other thing that didn't quite fit with me um, at our first farm is that because we were selling meat, we had to, by law, bring it in to an abattoir mm -hmm. um, to be butchered. And uh, I had a real problem with that. Um, I didn't like it. <laughs> I don't like, you know, it's so we 
when I was learning um, with my my mentor, um, like I said, he had his own on farm abattoir and butcher shop. And so, you know, we would go out to the field and um, he would see which animal was properly finished. Um, and, you know, he would shoot the animal on the head from afar and then, you know, we'd, we'd bleed, bleed it out um, and then bring it back to the to the shop. And so um, to me, that just really resonated with me because, you know, you have this animal that's born on a farm under the blue sky, it dies under, you know, it's out there on pasture, eating grass, na na na, and, you know, instantaneously dead. No stress, no putting it in a trailer, no hauling it somewhere. And no matter how you handle them, when you do that, there's a level of fear. And so, um, I, I just, I had to do that. And we had a great small abattoir very close to us, only 40 minutes away. And so it wasn't a problem with that. It's just, um, it just felt wrong to me. And I know it has to be that way because of our system, but um, that's the other part of the equation is that I really, um, our, our last daughter, she's in, uh, sorry, I should say our last daughter who's still at home, she's in grade 11. So she has one more year with us before she goes off to university. And once she goes off to university, I really want to use my time and energy to try and get on farm um, animal harvest legalized in Canada. So that's really what I want to sort of a big uh, drive for me is to make that legal so that, you know, if someone wants to buy meat off of me, that they're, they can also be, um, you know, supporting, uh, the harvest of an animal just, I mean, the same way as, you know, when people hunt, right. The deer is out there and then it's, it, that's it. It's shot. I mean, it's a different place you're shooting it, but you know what I'm getting at. It's just that it's an instant thing. You're not, um, having to, stress that animal out and and then um and then harvest it with all those stress hormones coursing through its body so anyway that's that's just something for me that i that's where i want to direct my my life energies to get <laughs> it's going to be an uphill battle but i think we can make it happen no that makes total sense so so currently the law is that if you sell meat to anybody like friends or family included you have to have it put down in an arbitrary well, not only sell it. I mean, if you came here and I said, "Hey, Robert, here's a steak," and it was one that I harvested, I could get in big trouble. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. I know it's it's absolutely nuts. Hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely will be supporting your efforts there to make that <laughs> not no longer an issue. I have a yeah, selfish question for you. So I am planning on, um, you know, like we we've we've had lambs, we've had chickens, we have dogs horses all all that uh at my folks house where i grew up but we used to run cattle uh, on our family farm before we turned into a tree plantation um we still have fields and everything there now but but a lot of it there's no more cows on it um however i'm planning on you know purchasing some land probably about 40 or 50 acres maybe 60 acres and i want to like have my own self-sustained you know, ranch where like all of my family's, you know, food intake is taken care of basically. And I'm curious, you know, based off of your level of expertise and experience, having worked at so many other people's ranches and then your own, both a larger scale and this downsized version, like what would you, 
recommend? What are some of the, the obstacles you would avoid? What are some pitfalls? What are some things that somebody in my position that's wanting to get into this? Because I feel like there's a growing surge of people that are wanting to do this. I feel like there's more demand for it. There's more need for it. People can work remotely now, so there's no you know inherent need to be located in the middle of downtown. You can have a place, a plot of land, grow things your own self, you know, have your own food and then work remotely. What what would you say to someone in my position or me um, that's wanting to get into this? Like, what are some things that you would recommend doing right out the get go? Hmm. Um, you mean assuming someone like doesn't really have any experience with farming? Uh, well, I guess just use me as an example. So I've got some experience. Um, this this is totally a selfish question. I'm I'm asking you because I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> No, but lots of people ask me that, Robert. And I think because like, we're not, you know, a big, huge ranch with, you know, 500 animals and stuff, it seems, I think, doable and within reach for people. So I get that. Mm -hmm. um, um, honestly, I think the biggest thing for us, like we looked for five years for our first farm for a plot of land. It was, um, it was so frustrating. Um, because we would go places and we would have like our hard lines of no, this, if this farm has this, we will not buy it. And then we had sort of our, you know, there's no perfect place, but um, you have to decide like what is, what is going to, you know, be an absolute deal breaker. What, what can you be flexible with? And, you know, what are your nice to haves? Because um, there's no, perfect place and there's so many crappy places like mm -hmm. you know chances are um in this day and age if you're getting a place that was a farm before you know you're either going to have to compromise on the house or something like that if you're just looking at land then um you know for us number one above uh anything else was water you know there's so many places and depending where you live where um water is either you know that it's been the aquifers have been so drained or it can be that there's so much toxic runoff from neighboring farms and ranches. Um, so I would say like you have to have a good supply of water because running out of water is like nightmare scenario and you want to make sure that water is clean. So um, for us, we had our soil tested and we had our water tested before we even bought the places that we were looking at. So um I'd say that's probably the most important thing. Um, everything else is like, you know, the land, if the land has been um, treated badly, it can, it can still be brought back. I mean, it's a living thing. And um, we've added like a lot of vitality to our farm. I mean, our farm that we're on right now has an example. Um, the people that owned it used it as a summer country getaway from Toronto and um, they just let neighboring farmers here take off the hay year after year after year for over 20 years well you can't do that um, when you do that you're just you know the soil is putting everything into these plants and you're taking it off and never giving anything back and so you know the soil was like very poor vitality, tons of wild strawberry growing everywhere. And so, you know, by putting cattle back on it and rotationally grazing them, um, you know, moving them every day so that they would, 
take some grass off, you know, poop, their hooves would like, you know, aerate the soil and then you'd move them the next day. In you know, just a few years, we've, we've really brought back the, it's, it's amazing to see the difference from where we were to where we are now. And it's going to be, you know, even tenfold in years from now um, as well. But um, so for us, we really wanted um, somewhere with good water. We wanted biodiversity around us. We didn't just want flat fields. And again, that's kind of geographic specific, but we live on the Canadian Shield. So we have very thin soils with uh, mm-hmm. huge outcroppings of granite and limestone all around us. We It's very forested where we are. And so um, we have to, I really believe in, I, I, that when you are when you are on a piece of land and you're going to farm it you kind of have to ask what does the land want not like how am i going to bend and pull this land to to do what i want it to do but how can i work within the tenants of this land so that you can increase all of the life that's around you so as an example of that um we have pastures where we are but they're all pockets within um forest so and then, like I said, we have these huge outcroppings where there's there's like maybe an eighth of an inch of soil on top of them, like just nothing really. And so um, for us, that has meant doing um, silvopastures. So we had to learn about silvopasture, um, which is basically farming the forest. And so we move our cattle through the forest, just like deer would. You don't keep them in one spot, but you move them around and they're eating like all of these native plants, um, you know, flowers, legumes, shrubs, bushes. Um, they have their calves out there and then they'll come back to get their waters every day so that we can, you know, check them over and stuff. And then we move them to a new area of land. Um, but it's, um, been incredible to see how vibrantly healthy they are you know they they will self-select so as an example of that is in the spring um you know after they've been in the barnyard eating hay for all winter it's really cold here in the winter um in the spring when they go out they'll just go savage for the white cedar um they'll eat cedar and they'll eat it and they'll eat it and it's interesting because that's the same time of year the deer are all eating cedar um and uh cedar is a a really strong anti-parasitic and um you know there's there's i mean parasites of all sorts that animals get um but um i never deworm my animals i never i don't have to you know but they'll eat it for like a week straight and then they won't touch it again for the for the rest of the year so it's just interesting to follow them around and see what they're doing um with their own instincts but um anyway just to get back to what you're asking so i would i would really say is um, you know, when, when it comes to the land is to also know what the neighbors are doing. I mean, if you're doing all these great things and your neighbors are growing like GMO soy or corn and spraying the shit out of it and it's getting onto your soil and into your water supply, I mean, what's what's the use, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like also what the neighbors are doing. Um, and then just getting, you know, either if you don't have a mentor that that is doing things similar to what you're doing. Um, I know for us... We went, I don't, are you familiar with Acres USA? Acres? No, I'm not. Okay. They're awesome. So Acres USA is like, it's a farming magazine, but they're, they're more than that. They have a yearly conference as well. And it's all, it's all levels of farming, but it's all um, sustainable farming, grass finished bees. 
I mean, they talk and went to. Um, and then we had their um, magazine. They have fantastic books. They give like publishers. They have um, videos online, all sorts of things. Um, and they really talk about regenerative agriculture. Um, and that they're an excellent resource for people that are starting out too. And a lot of times, if there was an article that I thought was interesting, but I wanted to get more into it, I would literally email the person or phone them and um, usually had excellent, you know, people were very generous with their, their time and information. So um, that was really helpful to me also in just sort of exploring like different breeds that I wanted to raise, you know, what the kind of breed of cattle that maybe works well with me, where I am in my location may not work, you know, with someone down in Texas. Um, and also, um, you know, like we milk our own cows. And so I was really interested in coming up with my own way that we could milk cows, but I could leave the calves on the cows, but we could still get our own milk. And I, I just wanted to do things differently. And, you know, it was hard to find people that were doing things the way I wanted to do them. So it was just a lot of generosity towards ourselves, being willing to make mistakes um, not getting too down on ourselves when things didn't work out the way we wanted them to do, realizing that, you know, every mistake was just going to be a learning experience. Um, I know there's maybe the type of people who like to analyze things and think about things for a really long time. And I felt like I had did, I had done that. I had read all the things I had volunteered on places. And when the time came, I just, I got on our farm and actually before we were even living on the farm, the day after we got possession, I had um, 35 head of cattle on there. Um, so I was, I was like, let's go. And so that kind of personality can get you in trouble. Sometimes you can get into it. You can, I mean, if you see it as trouble, I just see it as learning and that's the way I like to do things. But um, maybe I talked a bit too much on that. Did I answer no, 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 that's your great. question? That's great. What would you what would you recommend as far as like um, you know specific livestock you know species like would you recommend people start with you know some chickens and scale up to some chickens with maybe a couple pigs and then maybe throw in a lamb or two and then maybe cattle like how would you kind of go through that process? You know what I know some people do say that but I don't really agree and the reason is because they're all so different like there's nothing you're going to do with chickens that's going to get you ready to have a cow you know there's nothing you're going to do with like a cow that's going to get you ready to have a pig like so um and and it's just my personality and I know a lot of people are think differently and act differently but I just had everything at once and I'm like trial by fire kind of person um so if if that seems overwhelming then then yes for sure like i'd say chickens are probably the easiest you know we have um meat rabbits are a good place to start too because it's very satisfying with meat rabbits you know you don't have to give them any grain you you raise them and you know two two and a half months later you have you have meat like a, a good good amount of meat actually you know from one litter of meat rabbits you can raise them without any feed you're just giving them whatever's in your area I mean that's what we did you know we just give them whatever's growing in our area at that time um you know if you start with um cattle I, I would say like just start with maybe it the thing is like if I have five head of cattle or I have 12 head of cattle I'm still doing the same volume of work it's mm -hmm. just you're feeding more, that's all. But it still takes the same 
amount of work. So, um, yeah, I don't know, Robert, like, I think, I think someone kind of has to know themselves and, and, you know, if that seems what I'm saying seems overwhelming, then adjust to, to what you know of yourself. Um, but that was how we did things. We just did it. No, I, I definitely can resonate with that style of thinking. I feel like I'm much the same. <laughs> what, what about with regard to like, you know, the amount of acreage you have per head of cattle or like if you're trying to be totally self-sustaining for your family of four, for example, you know, mm-hmm. how many animals and in, in, like how many how many animals would you need to reasonably expect to have in order to be able to, you know, breed and have turnaround so that, you know, you're able to actually fill the freezer for four people for a year? Yeah, well, um, especially ones that eat a lot of meat like me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like for, um, so for us, we're, we're about five, and I can just sort of tell you what I know going into, you know, we harvest everything in the fall um, mm-hmm. after it's been, you know, really gotten nice and fat and nutrient dense on all those fast growing, nutritious um, grasses and plants. Um, and so, Going into winter, I want to have a year's worth of food. So um, our two older daughters, they don't live with us. They're both gone off, but they still get their meat from us. Um, They still have to buy some stuff from farmers in their area. But when they come home, they actually bring three suitcases and they go home with suitcases (laughs) full of frozen meat. Um, So what we, what how that looks right now is um, for us, that's two full beef. And then, um, so I want to be able to butcher at least two full beef every year. Sometimes three um, would be nice, but it just depends on if and when our daughters are coming home to visit, because um, if they're going to come home in the fall and I don't have to store it, then, then it might be three, but this year it's going to be two. And so to back, that up a little bit so I need to know you know three four years ago that I'm going to be butchering you know two beef this year or in the next coming years because we raise our animals we butcher them they're solely grass-fed in the winter they just get hay and so um you know I think I heard you talking about this Robert maybe it was somebody else but talking about how lean grass-fed beef is Mm -hmm. Um, that's improperly raised grass-fed beef. Grass-fed beef, it just, this is one of my pet peeves. It should not be really lean and tough. That's an animal that was butchered too quickly and not butchered when it was on the upswing of its, of its fat adding growth. But we could talk about that if you want to, but anyways, so we do two beef, um, hopefully two deer, uh, this year it was just one because I lucked out, but my husband got lucky. Um, and we had, um, about 18 turkeys, um, 20 chicken. Um, I used to have a lot more chicken, but we just don't eat it as much. We both prefer sort of red meat um Mm -hmm. and we find um that when the girls come home bringing home frozen chickens is like really cumbersome in a suitcase so they don't take as many um we have two pigs that we butcher every year um uh what else am i missing here this year we bought half a bison from some friends that live up north that do grass-fed and finished bison because i didn't get that um second year and um i just I was a little bit worried about us being short. So I decided, and this was the first year that we found some bison 
um, outside of Alberta that was just grass fed and finished. Usually they're fed grain and so I won't get them. Um, and uh, yeah, what else do I have in there? We have some fish, um, but it's five chest freezers, the biggest chest freezers you can get full because I mean, I'll have a whole chest freezer that will be fat and bones and um, you know, the stuff that I have to get to later. So in the fall, we are harvesting and butchering all of it ourselves. And so time gets really tight. So like, you know, I might have things that I have to like smoke or cure, or do something and I'll just freeze them and have to put it on standby until I can get to it later. So all winter long, I'm taking those bones out, roasting those bones and making broth with them. Um, and then I'll have a stand up freezer full of like all my broth and like rendered fat and stuff like that. Um, that will get me through until uh, the next fall when I, or winter, when I have to do that all over again. Does that make, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> that helps a lot. Well, what are some, yeah. some cuts? Cause I feel like, you know, as a hunter myself, I'm always trying to just get every possible morsel of food and nutrients I can from any animal that I kill. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's so much that goes to waste. Like that's my pet peeve is people throwing food away. Oh, They're I just know. like, I can't even, ugh, I can't stand it. Uh, I know, but I'm sure you, there's so many different cuts that that y'all have learned to just make absolutely delicious that most people would not even think twice about. So, like, what's what's like one of your go-to recipes that's easy, super delicious and nutritious, and people should should start uh, incorporating more? Well, yeah. Sorry, I forgot to also say we have three goats and four lamb every mm, year too. Gotcha. I forgot about that, <laughs> um, but. It's interesting what you say too about those cuts because like um you know like when we hunt we have neighbors that hunt too and i i always tell them aren't going to have that carcass and oh my lord how much meat there is that i get doing that you know mm-hmm. i mean and like duck hunters as an example they'll breast out the duck and you have this entire carcass full of meat so one of my um and you know i've try to show this on Instagram and stuff too, but you know, like I'll make, um, head cheese or, um, you know, with pork heads because there's so much meat that's on there. But I think one of the easiest things that, um, people can do is like, when you have like these sort of tough gnarly bits is just making roulette, which is really just a pretty way of saying like potted meat. And it is to me, it is the most perfect food. Like my husband works night shifts sometimes and he'll just take jars of this roulette and bring them because it's literally just meat long cooked in broth and fat. And you can put whatever gnarly bits are in there and you cook it until it's, you know, just so tender and you can add some seasonings, you can add some herbs, whatever you want. And then you take it all and you shred it up and you, chop it up when it's all done cooking and you pour that broth and that um, um, back into a jar you just pack them into jars and I pack them into jars that are maybe like 500 mil you know so like two cups worth sort of and um, you salt it up season it up and then you can just pour a little um, one you put it in the fridge so it cools down a bit and you can pour a little fat cap on it like I like to use duck fat or goose fat you can use ghee like whatever you want because it kind of seals it mm-hmm. And at that point, it'll stay in your fridge for a couple months, no problem. Um, I usually make a lot and then I'll put it in the freezer because even when it's frozen, you can take it out. It's like the perfect ratio of fat. Well, maybe not 
exactly how you would do it, but like, you know, fat to protein. So it's really satiating and um, it's transportable. All you need is to take it out and grab a spoon and you can put anything in there. Like you can put whatever you want to do one with like all the scraps of the deer meat, you know, you want to, and then maybe add a little bit of pork belly with deer because deer's pretty lean mm -hmm. or, you know, just for some extra fat or whatever, but yeah, you can do that with anything and it's, very satiating and delicious and super convenient like you if you make up a whole bunch at once um you know then you have all these jars and whenever you're in a time pinch you can grab them yeah that's like one of my go-to's for sure yeah that sounds delicious to me I'm, i've always been a huge fan of like potted meat though. i mean it's super simple but super tasty and like you leave nothing to spare yeah exactly so you brought it up i have to dig a little deeper here you want to kind of flesh out the whole grain fed versus grass fed debacle <laughs> yeah well you know okay so i'll just tell you this little story so when i was working with richard who i alluded to a couple times um i remember we were going to harvest an animal and i didn't know anything and so we were going to harvest this animal and we were sitting on this fence post and he was pointing to these different um you know um uh, beef to me, these different heads of cattle. And he was saying, so, um, that one right there, what do you think of that one? I'm like, yeah, it looks good to me. And he's like, no, that one's, that one's not finished. Look at the one beside it. And I honestly could not see, I just couldn't see what he was looking at. And so we spent quite a bit of time where he would just bring me out and be, you know, pointing out to me, you know, you'd have like these two steers side by side. And he would say, you see that one, that one's not finished. You see that one, that's the one we're going to, we're going to harvest today. And it really um, dawned on me what an art, you know, that just this experience and living on the land all those years that to him, it was just like, he could see it no problem. And I, I was looking at two animals that looked identical to me. And so I tried to like, you know, scrape together what I could get from him. And I, I sure don't want to make it seem like I know, like I'm some experienced, you know, cattleman and I, I get this, you know, to the level he did. Cause I certainly don't, but I got enough to understand, um, you know, and him and I had so many conversations where we would cook up a steak and talk about things, or we would be butchering an animal as an example. I remember one time, um, you know, he would butcher for other neighboring people who would maybe feed grain, um, not maybe, but fed grain, a lot of grain to these sort of big, you know, um, Charley continental type breeds that are really meant for a feedlot because they get huge fast. Mm -hmm. And you would, <clears throat> you know, have these carcasses hanging up and you could compare them and, and see you know this one's grass-fed and finished and this one's been like a grain all its life and you could see the difference in the quality of meat but you could also smell the difference and you could also texturally I mean I remember cutting up that meat and it was just greasy and sour there's like you know sometimes cattle will get acidosis which is just you know literally acidosis because they've eaten too much grain which is like it causes inflammation in their guts and so it was very tactile for me, you know, and, and to be able to have him say, you know, that animal's not finished, this animal's finished, looking at all these carcasses. And so it was really valuable for me um, to be able to do that um, and to have that time. And I see now a lot of people and a lot of people come to me too and say, you know, I really want to do grass fed and finish, but 
it's really, you know, they're eating it because they think it's healthy and, um, they're, and, and it's better for the environment. Um, but it's really not as pleasurable sometimes, you know, as um, this nice fatty sort of um, piece of grain fed meat. And I don't really blame them. I've, I have had, like I said, I moved around a lot. And every time we moved, I had to find new farmers. And a lot of times, um, well, every time when I was looking for them, I would say I'm, I'd like to buy, you know, I'd buy one steak, I'd buy a package of ground beef I would buy and I'd pay you know a premium to be able to just buy some cuts and then I would taste it and I'd be like there's no way you know this is the most miserable meat and it didn't mean they weren't raising them right or without care it just means that you can't put take these animals and put them out on pasture and say okay it's 18 months that's how long I was keeping them for it's time to butcher them because man that is miserable like Mm -hmm. you know and people are paying good money for that And um, I think in a lot of ways, like a lot of farmers are getting more and more into grass fed and finished beef. But I think we have to have be a little bit humble about admitting that there's more to it and that these cattlemen that have been doing this for years really have a knowledge and experience level that we should like be be tapping into and, you know, tucking away our egos and admitting, you know, that, yeah, this beef is pretty miserable and I need to do better next time. So um listen properly finished grass-fed beef is fatty it's tender it's insanely delicious um it tastes like beef people that say oh it tastes gamey no it tastes like beef and anyone that hunts understands that meat is supposed to have a flavor it's not supposed to be bland but it's supposed to be a flavor that is deep and rich and sweet not sour it shouldn't be light pink it should be you know have deep oxygenated muscles from moving and living. And um, I think that I, I, every time I hear someone say, Oh, I I'll eat it because I know it's better, but Oh, you know, I really do like a fatty kind of meat. I kind of like grimace because I'm like, you're just not eating really good grass fed beef. No, I totally understand that. It makes, that makes perfect sense. What, what do you say to the people that, um, that argue that a lot of the grain finished beef is predominantly grass fed the majority of its life and it's just grain finished. But I mean, it sounds like that still has a pretty massive impact on the quality of the meat overall. Yeah. And, um, I'm going to just talk in generalities because someone's going to get pissed off and say, Oh, it's not the case with me. You know, that, but I'm just going to speak to like, you know, production commodity type beef right now. So when people say like, well, it's on pasture for like most of its life, well, it has a pretty short life. Like let's talk percentages. Yeah. You know um, it's, we have, and I, I actually have pictures up on my Instagram if anyone wants to look at them, but um, of going to these places that raise stalkers, right? So these stalker cattle, they're, they're sort of that in-between stage where they're, they've been weaned, but now they're growing out so that they can get big enough to go to the feedlot. And, um, you know, those animals are butchered at, I don't know, anywhere from 13 to 15 months of age. You know, that's, that's it. So, you know, they've, when they say they're out on pasture and, you know, you can look at the pictures if you want. Actually, I can drive down the road um, about 20 minutes from us 
And there's someone that raises stalkers on a very small scale here. So we're talking a small family farm. I'm not even talking about industrialized beef, but a lot of people will do that and they'll raise them here and then they send them off to the feedlot um, to go spend the rest of their days fattening up. Um, it's pretty miserable. Um, they are not, these are not animals that are being raised to regenerate the land. They're not animals that are being raised to like, they're being raised, um, they're being fed, they're on pasture, but they are still being fed grain. They're mm. not just on grass. So, so that's a pretty, um, you know, back to what I was saying about acidosis, like that is an inflammation in their guts, right? So that gets in, that's what's building the flesh that we're eating. So it's not that they're just grass fed. And what people are saying, well, they're on grass, well, uh, <laughs> you know, they're also getting the grain and the grass that they're on. And I'm sure there are, again, I'm going to emphasize, I'm talking about generalities and the places that I've seen and been to, it's not a regenerative farm. They're not rotating them through grasses every day. They're putting them out on the back 40 to eat grain, to eat the grass and then come in twice a day and get fattened up so that they'll grow really fast because time is money in these operations, right? They got to get them big fast so that they can get off to the feedlot. So, and, you know, in, and, you know, we're talking about, all sorts of things in that feed ration we're not talking about you know which is includes glyphosate and includes genetically modified and herbicides and medications and so it's a really big like it's bigger than just saying well you know they're just on they're on grass for most of their lives well no that's kind of a to me that's kind of twisting the truth a little bit yeah yes yeah see, I, I mean I, I feel bad because i don't know enough of this stuff i'm not first time that like I want to know I want to experience I want to see with my own eyes I mean that's why I want to that's why I'm motivated to raise my own because then I'll know with 100% degree of certainty you know what the life of these cattle have been like um so like with with you doing it all yourself and you know having these grass-fed grass finished it just takes a little bit longer for them to be properly finished right yeah and the other thing to that is that i i mean where we live like on the canadian shield so we don't live we don't have like this is not a natural grassland you know ruminants like the bison and antelope and deer they they um really thrived and created actually you know all the grasslands you look at the prairies in canada here those were formed by these ruminant animals we have where we are, um, like I mentioned earlier, it's really forested area. And um, so, you know, and I'm not supplementing with any concentrates, right? So I could for sure butcher our animals at two years of age um, and it's a luxury. And I don't wanna make it seem like other farmers that are relying on farming for their income should be keeping their animals till they're three or four years of age because some of my best friends are cattlemen and that would bankrupt them like it's just not feasible it doesn't make sense but it's a luxury that we can do because we are doing it for ourselves and i really want uh, i know the flavor that i'm looking for i really want a depth of flavor i love wild meat like that's to me that is the whole joy of eating is that flavor so and fat is also really important to me so um we're able to do that you know to keep them until I can look at them and knowing what I know from what I've learned 
um, say, wow, like, you know, that guy, <laughs> he's got, he's good. Like he's, he is going to be prime. Like that's what I'm looking for. And I get to do that because of, you know, I'm doing it for myself. Totally. Totally. What do you think about the whole, I mean, just based off of our conversation thus far, I can tell you're very much an advocate for the nose to tail approach and eating everything that you can, but there's like this movement within the carnivore space currently to, I mean, that you don't need to, that it's just basically you can eat ribeyes every day and be fine. But for me personally, that, that issue is, is more underlying than just the nutrition alone. Like I feel like it's my responsibility to eat as much of the animal as I possibly can so that it's none of it's going to waste. I'd, I'd be curious to get your take on that. Yeah. I love that you said that. I feel the same way. I think, I think that there's, you know, a responsibility we have to like honor all of that animal. And uh, I think I feel it intimately. And I think, you know, because, because of what we do and because I know this animal intimately, you know, I, I've like developed a relationship with this animal and, you know, whether it's, you know, something that we hunted, we hunt on our own land. So I still feel like that connection. And I, I think that, um, you know, we can argue back and forth about the nutrients and stuff. And I still think there's things that you get from eating nose to tail that you don't get from just a ribeye, but, um, it just, I, I think that that's part of the deal. Like, you know, we, we learn how to use all of that animal because that animal's given us this great gift of its, of the body it leaves behind. Totally agree. Listen, Tara, I know I could sit here and ask you questions all day long because this is an a massive area of interest of mine, but I want to be respectful <laughs> of your time. We've been talking for over an hour. Um, but I, I'm really excited to see that you're putting out this content. I've resonated with everything you said. I see eye to eye with everything you're saying. And I just respect you a lot as a person because what you're doing is a very, you know, quote unquote old school way of doing things. But it's it's what I've come to, you know, love and appreciate. And I feel like the more people understand it and you know, respect it and see it for what it is, the better. So I, I definitely tip my hat to you for making a valiant effort to like illustrate this, not just do it yourself, uh, you know, which is great, obviously, but to actually showcase it and put it out there for other people to see. I feel like that is a huge, huge demand for that and a huge need for that. So I, I appreciate you taking, taking the torch and doing that. Well, thank you. That's, that's very kind. And, and I, I um, really appreciate and respect the, the content and everything that you guys are putting out there too. I, I think your work ethic and your common sense and groundedness is, is really needed in this world. So deep respect for you guys. Well, thank you. I, I truly do appreciate the kind words. Where can people go to find out more about you and follow you along on Instagram? Um, we're at um, Slow Down Farmstead. Um, on Instagram and then we have a blog too but it's basically just content from from Instagram that's moved over there for right now but it's just slowdownfarmstead.com awesome awesome I will link out to that for sure and then if I'm ever in Canada I'm gonna have to come you come here and I'll feed you operation. I, I did the signs of paperwork <laughs> or something you have to take it to the arbitrage before I can eat the steak but <laughs> hopefully oh, I think that I think a little uh outlaw behavior is necessary sometimes that's right a little bit of risk is good for us that's right <laughs> well thank you again Tara I truly do appreciate okay. it and I will definitely keep in touch okay thanks Robert take care take care <laughs>